Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hello and welcome to the Political Party. This episode features the First Minister of Scotland and leader of the SNP, Humza Youssef. And there is a lot we talk about in here, all the things that you would expect, plus a few things that you might not. And before I come on to the detail of the interview, just to let you know, um, there are two more shows to be recorded at the Edinburgh Festival. If you're coming up on the 18th of August at the McEwen Hall, I'm interviewing the Deputy Leader of the Labour Party, Angela Rayner. Obviously, Angela's been on the show before, always delivers, is always great fun. Uh, so that will be a raucous afternoon. And on the 21st of August, I'm talking to Kate Forbes, who stood against Hamza Yusuf and run the contest very, very close, ran the contest very, very close, uh, just marginally losing out on becoming leader of the SNP and First Minister. Uh, so that will be fascinating to interview the two people who stood to be First Minister this year. Uh, and obviously, Kate Forbes offers a, a different version of um, what the SNP would be um, compared to Hamza Yusuf. So that'll be a, a, a fascinating contrast. Uh, and she's always very um, uh, passionate and and uh, speaks her mind uh, in a very articulate way. So uh, 18th of August with Angela Rayner at the McEwen Hall and Kate Forbes at the Gilded Balloon on the 21st of August. When we return to London, uh, my guests are on the 18th of September, Dan Jarvis, um, all-round action man and hero, former paratrooper, served in Iraq and Afghanistan and is now a Labour mayor and a Labour MP. And on the 2nd of October, a very special guest, the lead singer of the Sleaford Mods, the, um, <laughs> I was going to call them satirical punk outfit, like I work in the NME or something, but um, I don't know how else to describe them. They're punk rock with a satirical edge and they're very very funny uh, and he's from Nottingham and the lyrics are hilarious the music's great so that will be a real treat um and I'll try and record some more um weekly episodes just over the internet and I'm sorry I haven't done that um I'm at the Edinburgh Festival and oh this is going to make me sound so old um I've got sciatica and it's a nightmare and I refer to it slightly in this interview so um sitting down to record a podcast has been a little bit difficult but anyway oh and of course I'm so stupid at promoting myself. I'm at the Edinburgh Festival doing my show Inside Number 10. And thank you to all of you who've been so far. Um, I'm at the Pleasance Courtyard until Sunday, the 27th of August. And as always, it's just such... Um, I just love doing it. it it's, it's one of the coolest places on earth, Edinburgh. And the festival is very special. Um, and so thank you to all of you who've come. Um, and um, yes, on to today's guest, Hamza Yusuf. Now, this has already had quite a lot of media coverage um, as a result of some of the things um, that the First Minister said during the interview about a whole range of things. And we talk about the things you would expect me to ask him about. What's it been like taking over as leader of a country and a party at a time when these police investigations are going on? Um, he's 38, you know, so it, it's, he's been around politics a while, but still, that, that's young to be in charge of a country. We talk about that, being a dad, toxic masculinity, a whole load of things. Um, football and, and loads of other um, uh, sort of uh, tangents that we go off on. 
Um, but this is a fascinating discussion with uh, Hamza Youssef, just about his life, about race, class, privilege, a whole load of things. Um, so um, without further ado, um, I will leave you in the hands of the First Minister of Scotland, Hamza Youssef. Thank you very much. Hello. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special edition of the Political Party live at the Edinburgh Festival. Um, if you've not been to one of these before, um, we, uh, it is a respectful show that is genuinely interested in politicians, regardless of my personal politics. I think politicians are fascinating individuals, and I'm delighted uh, that today's guest has agreed to do the show. I've met him a couple of times before. He's a brilliant laugh, and he is now the First Minister of Scotland. His rise through the ranks has been pretty rapid and he has reached the top of the tree, becoming leader of the SNP and the leader of the country just a few months ago. Please give a huge welcome to Hamza Youssef. (laughs) (laughs) Hamza, welcome. Is this your fringe debut? Uh, as First Minister, it absolutely is. By the way, did you know he announces himself before he comes on stage? I thought somebody else would announce you. That's no. what's good about being an impressionist and a mimic. You can just <laughs> put on a different voice, welcome that forward, and then they come flying on. Yeah, yeah, sadly I just did it in my own voice. Yes! <laughs> what, what a waste of my powers. I, should, I need to tell everyone at the start, by the way, and you, Hamza, that I'm currently um, suffering from sciatica. Ah, yes. So if you see me wincing, or like making noises. I, I'm not reacting to what you're saying. <laughs> it's not, I don't want you to take it as a, as, a, as a slight. I'm just in quite severe physical pain. Oh, um, but I'm on cocodamol and diazepam. So <laughs> equally, if I fall asleep um, <laughs> in the next hour, don't take that personally either. So first things first, you've been First Minister for a few months now. Uh-huh. 132 days, not that I'm counting, of course. Do you count them? Uh, no, no. <laughs> just thought I'd better double check before I came on, but yeah. Oh, just over 100 days. And uh, how's it been? Quiet. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it has been uh, not without its challenges, I think it's fair to say. Uh, but it's also been the honour and continues to be the honour of my life. I mean, this is, this is the country I call home, country I raise my kids in the only country that I've ever lived in, and to, to be asked and, and, and to be voted uh, by the party to lead it, and the parliament to then lead it, it's a huge honour. And it's, kind of, it's about as close as I'll ever get to captaining the national team, but I get a feeling that it kind of feels like that, <laughs> being the captain of your national team. That's how I feel. Um, so no, it's a huge honour. But aye, not without its challenges and stresses, I think. It's no. Um, you said, I, I watched your... Um Victory speech live on live on Sky News, uh, and it was very emotional watching you talk about. I mean, again, we have our political differences, but I think you have to respect anyone who puts themselves forward for a leadership role and wins, and the pressure that comes with the leadership of a party or a country. And it was incredibly moving. You're the first Muslim to lead Scotland. I think you're the first Muslim to lead a, a developed Western country. Mm. Um, it, it's a huge personal achievement, and to do it in your 30s is incredible. And it, there are times when you're very emotional. Then I saw your mum and dad were there, and they looked very emotional as well. And Whatever's going on politically with your party and everything, I mean, just personally, that was just... You contained yourself very well in the moment, but at times the, the, the emotion must have been oh. in danger of overwhelming you. Genuinely, for, the, for a few weeks after the result, I was an emotional wreck. Like, things would just... I don't know how they would make me well up uh, and tear up. And, and you mentioned my parents. I don't know if any of you ever saw the clip, but Mum was in an interviewed by STV. 
My mum's had no media training. <laughs> you can tell that when you listen to the clip. Um, she, she gets asked a question. Well, now your boy's first minister. Do you think he'll, he'll continue to listen to his mum? She goes, he better. If he doesn't, you'll get a clip. You'll get a clip around the ear. And I said, mum, we did pass legislation to ban smacking the kids. Um, so she, yeah, no, it was. Do you know, it's probably the most connected um, I've ever felt to my ancestry. And I'm somebody who feels really strongly about my identity. You know, all parts of my identity are really important to me. But my grandparents, both maternal and paternal, died when I was pretty young. Um, so I didn't have a strong, strong relationship with them. Um, but I felt closer to them and have done since my, the, the, the election contest uh, than I ever have before. Because it just made me think so much about that journey that they must have made. I mean, coming to a country, they didn't know the language, barely any pounds in their pocket, and they grafted and grafted and grafted so that I could have the opportunity that I've got. And to me, I'm kind of emotional thinking about it, but to me, it just meant, it meant the world that because of their sacrifice, I could then be in a position, and they could never have thought, whether it was my grandfather or my grandmother, they could never have believed when they arrived here if somebody said to them, by the way, in two generations, you know, your grandson will be you know, leading the country. They, they just, it'd just be beyond their comprehension. So, no, it made me really emotional, and, and, and that, and so you think about the previous generations, then it also makes you quite emotional thinking about your your kids and then the kind of impact it might have on them, and, which has been the really tough bit, actually, because you just don't get to see your kids as much. Um, God, I'm going to start greeting already. <laughs> just started. Um, but, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely been emotional, for sure. And it also tells a story. I mean, if you think of the people governing our country at the moment, you're the First Minister of Scotland. Rishi Sunak is the leader of the UK government, and Asawar is the leader of the opposition yeah. here. Obviously, we've been through a period where... Um, having only had one female prime minister, we then had two female prime ministers, one for sort of a day or two, uh, a female first minister. At one point, all the leaders of the parties in Scotland were female. It feels like there was no diversity for it, it was just all white men. And then in the last 10 years, yeah. there's been, it's become way more diverse. And at first it felt gender, and now it feels with race. Yeah. That, I don't know if that tells its own story about Scotland or just the political realm, but do you sense that Scotland feels relaxed having a, a Muslim leader. Yeah, do you know, it's, it's, it, yeah, there'll always be people that don't uh, accept it and that always have a problem with it. And you can, take my, you can check my Twitter feed on any given day and, and uh, you'll, you'll probably see that and hear that. But you know what? It doesn't come up and neither the doorsteps uh, and nor does it come up when I was doing, what, 19 hustings. You know, you had people really grilling us on policy and all the rest of it. Nobody asking me, well, because you're a Muslim, you know, are you sure we can trust you? Where's your loyalty to this country and all that kind of nonsense? So I think we have. I suppose I put a note of caution on what you've said around the kind of diversity of political leadership. You know, and I, I know and as well um, and, and, and get along relatively well, despite what you believe, uh, what we might hear at FMQs. But, you know, we're two South Asian males who both went to private school. So we come with some privilege. Uh, and you've got to recognise that. And, and I think it's really important for us to recognise that. So there's still too many barriers to politics. Class is one of them, I'm afraid. Uh, still there. I mean, you know, how do we make uh, politics as accessible to those um, that do not have the privilege that I've had, for example, uh, growing up? Uh, and then when, it looks, when we look at diversity, you've mentioned three South Asians. Well, we've never had a single black member of the Scottish Parliament, ever. I don't think we've ever had a single Jewish member of the Scottish Parliament. I may, if I'm wrong, I'm happy to be corrected. There's a lot of diversity that we just hasn't come through our political ranks yet in Scotland. But I genuinely hope that people can look at me, and I've, I've had this a lot over the last 130-odd days, 
uh, a lot of people from, from different diversities saying, you know what, because you've made it, it makes us feel that any of us can make it, which is, is a lovely um, a bit of inspiration I hope I can give to folk. Just sound like a backhanded compliment, doesn't it? I mean, if you can do if it. If you can do it. <laughs> Have you been talking to my big sister? <laughs> you? Really? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's, no, it's, and, and, and you know, this is um, maybe an uncomfortable message for some, but I've spent most of my political life being told by mainly middle-aged white male conservatives, both in politics and frankly, some in the media, that I'm not smart enough, that I'm out of my depth, that you don't, basically essentially saying you don't belong here as in, in the political realm. And um, yeah, I hope that any other person, whether it's your color or whether it's your gender or whether it's your background, you know, if you get told actually you don't belong here, you should kind of look at me and say, fuck you, actually, you do belong. <laughs> Sorry, it's not first message of language, but you should, you should just kind of give two fingers and say, you know what, actually, I do belong here because you very much do. This is your country and whatever field you're working in, you know, you should absolutely have confidence that you're able to achieve the highest level. You touched on class there, and obviously um, the uh, education exam results are out today. The attainment gap has widened between middle and, and working class pupils um, in Scottish schools. Why do you think that is, and why do you think, after so long in government, the SNP hasn't been able to, to close that gap? Obviously, for Nicola Sturgeon, it was a defining mission, one she'd really have to accept that she failed on. Why, why is that such a persistent problem? So, I suppose a few things. First of all, these exam results. Remember, this is when the SQA is going back to what you might call more normal marking procedure, understandably so and rightly so. During the course of the pandemic, there was more sensitive marking, given the challenges our young people uh, were facing during that pandemic. So there's still an element of comparing to pre-pandemic, and there's still some stats that are concerning compared to pre-pandemic. And it also depends where you look at. So universities, I mean, if you look at the latest stats, uh, we have more young people from areas of deprivation going to university than ever before. Had really increased since 2015, effectively when Nicola took over in 2014, really increased uh, quite quite substantially. But there are we just have not quite, I'm afraid, uh, been able to 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 make a significant an impact in relation to poverty, and that's why it's called the poverty-related attainment gap, as we'd want to. And and I'll be frank, a lot of that is because we are trying to do it with one hand tied behind our back. So we will take action, like the game-changing. That's not my words; it's the words of poverty uh, experts, the game-changing Scottish child payment, but then we've got the UK government that'll take money out of people's pockets out of universal credit. So for all that we can do, we're still at the mercy of a government that decides that the only way to, 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 to progress and to save money uh, and to, 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 to work the public finances uh, is by taking away uh, the safety net for people. Blooming heck, they need that safety net now, I think, than more now than they've ever needed it before. So look, there's still challenges for us. I'm not going to pretend otherwise, 16 years on, people are right to examine every element of our record, but there's plenty on our record that I will stand on and stand proudly on. Is there also a wider issue, and we saw it with the UK government with Brexit, is that when a government, and, and with Iraq, is that when one issue dominates the bandwidth of a cabinet, oh. everything else gets squeezed out. And, and since, well, pre-2014, Independence has been the thing that has been the number one topic of conversation, and that is what's animated. Works, you don't think that that has squeezed. But where's the creative thought within education? Why not things like academies or free schools? Why but not? There, there the is, kind but there's also there's also value. The public so, sector reform that you could have done. Yeah, and we have done. I mean, we've done some incredible public sector reform. Whether it's, for example, a single police force, and we have the one of the lowest levels of crime in over 40 years. That doesn't happen by coincidence or 
you know, by good fortune. It happens because you decide to take really difficult decisions, but felt, felt really hard at the time. And we got, you know, a pounding from our opposition uh, for taking forward that reform. But government just doesn't work like that. I've been in cabinet for, for many years, been in government for uh, 11 odd years. And, you know, when we sit around the cabinet table, yep, there'll be discussions on independence because there'll be a paper here or there. 90% of our cabinet discussions, at least, are on the issues of the day that, are dealing, that we're dealing with in the NHS, in education, uh, in transport, in justice, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't think it's a, it's a capacity issue, but we have been dealing for the last 13 of those 16 years, we've been dealing with a government that, whether it was austerity or Brexit or now the cost of living crisis, or trust as many budget, they're progressing policies, which whether we like it or not, are causing real damage. And we are not quite powerless. We have some power to try to mitigate it. But my government spends three billion pounds mitigating the effects of decisions we didn't make. And that's three billion pounds I'd rather spend in the poverty-related attainment gap or hospitals, et cetera, et cetera. You mentioned the police. Um, your party's obviously kept them quite busy. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm just going to go for my water at this point. <laughs> I mean, how do you feel about the fact that you were effectively the anointed successor of Nicola Sturgeon? And then it feels as if, though, she and her husband didn't really tell you about what that job was going to entail based on some of the stuff they'd done. Look, I, and I genuinely have to be careful what I say, so live police investigation, but I'll look, try to be as upfront and, and honest with you as I possibly can. I mean, if I had known then what was going to transpire, I still would have gone for First Minister of Scotland because it is the greatest honour. Why would you not go for it to lead your country and to lead the party that I've been a member of for almost, almost 20 years, 19 years uh, this year? So I still would have gone for it. I think in terms of the police investigation, again... I have to be careful what I say. We, I just don't I, don't... I don't believe that Nicola knew what people are accusing her of, of, of knowing. I think she genuinely... When I spoke to Nicola, I remember she phoned me on the night of the 14th, Valentine's Day, 14th of February. And, uh, <laughs> Did she often ring you on Valentine's Day? <laughs> no, hence why it was quite unusual. I was sitting there with my wife and like, call came in about quarter to ten. And it was Nicola and I was like, that's weird. Like, why is she phoning me today on quarter to ten? So I took the call and uh, I remember her words. She said to me, um, you're not going to like what I've got to say. And I was like, well, what is it? And she said, um, actually, I didn't even say that. I said, because I knew what was coming. I said, don't do it. I said, don't do it. You have no reason to do it. And then she actually started, and I was, I won't lie to you, there was a bit of choice language. Um, you know, and I was trying to say I thought it was a wrong decision. <laughs> I said to him, I'm going to phone John. There's a wasp on me here. Uh, I said to him, I'm going to phone John, John Swinney, as I could tell on her. Uh, oh, let's get this wasp off. Fuck. Stings me. It's all right. Oh, my God. <sighs> the jeopardy. We'll put it down. We'll put it down. There we go. Hold on. Hold on. We're going to have the wasp down here. There we go. Look at um, that. Leadership. <laughs> <laughs> um, Removing the threats to the Scottish people. <laughs> One wasp at a time. <laughs> um, we're not going to deal with wasps. We're going to deal with the root causes. Of what not. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, so where was it? Yeah, so Nicola, uh, and I said, look, I'm going to speak to John. I think you're making the wrong decision. But then she really got to me when she said, Hamza, you've got no idea what it's like. Like, I can't even go for a coffee with a friend without police officers doing their job, but sitting on the table next to me. She goes, that's no way to live a life for eight years, and I'm done. And I remember thinking, right, you know what, I can't really argue about it. Still phone John right enough. So can you, can you change your mind? He's like, ain't happening. She's made up her mind, and that's that. But then when 
the arrests happen and things like that, yeah. and the motorhome. Did part of you think, well, actually, that's why you've stepped down? It's not because of not being able to go for a coffee. I think everybody had that thought, but I genuinely believe. Uh, Nicola, when she says, you know, we've not talked about police investigation, I'm going by her, her public commentary, and she has said, look, I did not know what was going to happen. And it's the stuff of absolute nightmares for her. And she's used the word, I think, traumatic a few times. And I, I absolutely believe her. I've known Nicola for, you know, well over 15 years and her family uh, she goes back a long time with my dad who was his uh, small business his accountancy office the basement was her first um, uh, base when she fought against uh, Mohammed Sawar Anna Sawar's uh, father for, for, for the Glasgow South Side uh, seat so you know we go back a long long time and I've, I've not known Nicola to be dishonest um, uh, or, or untruthful she's always been absolutely straight um, in that regard so you know I, I take her at face value but also if I'm, if I'm honest uh, with it yeah, honest about it, you know, and I understand why. I mean, you guys spend way more time thinking about this stuff than I do. Um, I know, but I have to say, Hamza, it's great for my material. Oh, brilliant, I'm sure. I'm Half sure my it's... Edinburgh show has been written. I'm I mean, sure. it's just, it's a I'm treat. Sure. <laughs> I'm sure. I mean, my, my goal is not to give Matt Ford any more material. Uh, I hope for his future Fringe shows. Yes. <laughs> but it is, it, I think part of the public, actually, that there's a level of, sympathy's maybe a too strong a word, but I think people feel like, well, this isn't your fault, mm. and yet you're now the guy who's having to answer for it. I don't know if you feel like that. A little bit, but again, I, I kind of... The, the view I've got on these things is, look, you're in control of what you're in control of, so you deal with that, work on that, try to improve as much as you can, and what you're not in control of is, is going to take its own path. So I get a lot of that. I get a lot of people kind of they meet me and they go, oh, son. And I said, I know, it's been tough, but, you know, <laughs> we'll get on with it. But, uh, no, you've you just got to deal with what's in front of you. Um, you know, the timing of it has been challenging as well. I remember the, the call I got about Peter's arrest. So I got a call after the arrest had taken place. Um, and it was, I remember it was our April recess. And that's the time, because, you know, when you're first appointed first minister, there's a kind of ceremony and pomp. You know, you, you've got to go to the court and you've got to do your first speech and you've got to appoint your cabinet and all the rest of it. And then we had this recess period in April and we thought, right, this is the time where you get to dominate the agenda, set out your stall a little bit. And on, what was the second or third day, I think it was like the 5th of April, you know, Peter gets arrested. <laughs> Go, right, that dominates for weeks and weeks. And then I thought, right, we're back into Parliament, I'm going to launch my <laughs> policy prospectus. Colin Beattie gets arrested on the day. <laughs> right. Um, and then, so, it's, uh, the, the most frustrating part for me is that the inability to then get cut through for what I'm trying to do. Because I'm afraid, whether I like it or not, the police investigation, of course, has got cut through in that image of... Police tent in the garden. That's going to that's going to you know see it in people's people's mind. You seem to have struck a slightly different tone in Holyrood, uh, in the chamber to, to your predecessors. You seem to be more um, collegiate, uh, more um, perhaps understanding towards your opponents. I don't know if that's just a parliamentary tactic or whether that represents mm. the way that you naturally do politics. I think it's the way I've always tried to do politics. Um, we obviously have a majority uh, alongside the Greens. But I never want to be in a position where we're just kind of railroading legislation through, through Parliament. I've always thought people, even from a kind of political perspective, people prefer to see their politicians working together. But generally speaking, there's more that unites a lot of us. If I think about the Scottish Labour Party, you know, a lot of things we agree on. In fact, I would go as far as saying probably most things we agree on. There is one giant thing we disagree on. Uh, or, you know, I think there's some in their party that probably agree with us right enough, but uh, that will come out in time, I'm certain. But, uh, you know, generally I think people want their politicians. So, look, you have a bit of political knockabout at FMQs. I think what people don't see is, outside that 45 minutes, 
most of us can have a pretty grown-up conversation. I actually had all the party leaders uh, in the office. And one of the things they said to me, one of them was like, this is the first time I've ever been in the first minister's office. And I said, okay, well, let's make it a more, more regular thing. And there was questions they were asking me, there was questions I was asking them. It was a much better conversation in that hour that we had in my office than the 45-minute kind of knockabout of FMQs. Because there's a really funny thing you said to Douglas Ross, which was, um, I think he said something that wound you up, and you said, I will not resort to name-calling, unlike Douglas Ross, a third-rate politician in charge of a third-rate party. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Some of the fastest U-turns I've ever seen. <laughs> but a lot of that is... I'd say what really made me laugh about FMQs is the sort of constant disruptions from the uh, gallery. Mm. Which, And I've been to... I remember going to Prime Minister's Questions years ago before they had the screen, yeah, yeah. before Fathers for Justice um, threw that condom for the powder. And it was so much... You go now to Parliament in, in London and because you're behind the glass screen, and not that it should be there as entertainment or sport, but it's not the same. No. Whereas in, in Edinburgh, just down the road, it is more open. It does feel... And, and I think it, there is... That sets a tone between the governed and, and, and the governing, that between the executive and citizen. Like you, you feel like you're welcome there in a way. And you still feel welcome at Westminster, but not quite in the same way with the screen there. So how do you get the balance right between Parliament being able to do its business on behalf of the majority... Yeah and not creating a, a situation which you've got, which it just feels like it gets disrupted. Yeah. I mean, at one week, I think it was like six or seven times in one session. Yeah, I think it was maybe my first one, actually. And what was really sad about it all was that um, a whole bunch of school kids who are really well-behaved yes. all had to leave. <laughs> and it's like, the kids were behaving well, it was the adults that were being disruptive. And, and, and so, uh, anyway, I think the presiding officer actually brought the... And actually, my family had to leave. They were there to see my first FMQs, my family and my four-year-old and, you know, my wife and everybody had to, had to leave. Uh, but they, again, were, were, were allowed back in later on. I think the presiding officer's probably got the balance right now. Uh, they've brought in some additional measures around security and ID and so on and so forth. Um, and if people do disrupt, then they may be able to take action uh, around how often they attend. Because I think it's really important. You see groups and groups of school kids there, especially, and you say members of the public from, from all walks of life, it would be a real travesty if there was screens put up or you know, there was only limited numbers and you know, people had to go jump through an incredible amount of hoops just to listen to parliamentary proceedings. So I hope we never, we never get there. So you have these uh, private meetings now with the other leaders of, of Scottish parties. What's your relationship with Rishi Sunak like? <laughs> I'm not sure there is a relationship. <laughs> if I'm honest, I, I struggle because I find Rishi just um, a bit robotic and scripted, um, different to others that I speak to. I mean, I've been in government 11 years, and uh, in all that time, it's been, been conservative uh, ministers that I've dealt with. And with some of them, you can build up a relationship to try to get things done. You know, one person I actually miss when I was Justice Secretary and he was Security Minister uh, was the late James Brokenshire, just a really good individual that you could have a bit of a discussion with behind the scenes, have a phone call, worked on a bill together. He would see your point, say, right, we'll try to fix that. I need a bit from you, Hamza. Can we, can we? And, we, and we'd get to a compromise solution. When I was Health Secretary, you know, my politics, very different to Sajid Javid's, especially in the Health Service, but actually... If there was an issue, particularly during the pandemic, you could pick, pick, pick the phone up to Sajid and you could get him, you know, you wouldn't just stick to the script and say, right, okay, I can I hear what you and the other devolved governments are saying? And we would get a solution sometimes, sometimes not. With Rishi Sunak, I remember actually the first call we had, I tried to break the ice a little bit because, you know, shared ancestry, my, my, my parents, uh, my grandparents, his parents, you know, come from the same, you know, kind of region in, 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 in what is now, now, now India, was then British India just 
got nothing back. And <laughs> I thought, okay, but we'll just get straight on to straight on to business. So I mean, I find it difficult, and and, and I don't think his he has much interest in Scotland at all. I think he just lets the Scotland office do what they have to do, and what they have to do at the moment is frankly uh, a disgrace, just undermining our devolution at every single turn. And we've never had uh, a, a Secretary of State for Scotland um, that has been so intent in trying to dismantle devolution. So when, when, what was it you said to him then to try and break the ice? Oh, I just said something, I mean, I can't remember the exact words, but it was something along the lines of, you know, I, I said to him, like, our politics are very, very different, but I have to say I was really uh, proud to see you know, a person of, co uh, of colour become Prime Minister in this country, and, uh, you know, if you, you know my, my parents, my grandparents come from Ludiana, and I've seen where your parents come from, and you go back often, and it was a little bit back, and then that was it. And it was, I think he actually wanted to get off the phone really quickly um, to me when we were on that first call, but then I had two or three things that I really wanted to talk to him so about. So what he said was like, yeah, yeah, whatever, look, um, let's stop the boats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> talking of immigration. <laughs> yeah, yeah, talking of immigration. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, so no, there was not much small talk, and and, there, and we've met after that, and, and there's not much in the way of, um, yeah, it, it's it's fine. We'll do what we have to do, and genuinely, we'll work together where we have to. And it's not just about Rishi. I mean, I would I'd be quite keen um, to get Keir Starmer up the road to I don't know, invite him into Butte House or Parliament. Let's have a discussion about you know how we give effect to, to an independence referendum, or let's also talk about devolution. Let's see how do we strengthen devolution. He knows my opinion about independence. I know his opinion. But okay, let's let's strengthen the Scottish uh, Parliament. Let's protect it, especially now that it's under under attack. And how do we do that? But I think here, probably is too afraid of the kind of conservative attack lines. Uh, if he meets, but he, he should. He should come up to Scotland. I certainly invite him up to Scotland and, and have a conversation about it. And do you, is that also uh, not just a reflection of how you want to do politics? But is it? Also, uh, are you sort of reflecting the political reality that you think perhaps the momentum behind independence has been lost for a variety of reasons? And actually, in the short to medium term, you're better off just trying to get as many powers as you can and being able to do what you can. No, with. not at all. Not at all. I mean, I just I, I believe that um, you cannot um, just continue to, to dismiss independence uh, if you're UK government and continue to say that we'll just give them a drip drip of power. It's not that that's happening, the quite reverse is happening. Of course, we're getting devolution undermined, whether it's through Section 35s or the IMA, the Internal Markets Act, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I genuinely believe that the only way you're going to break the impasse is through people power. That's how we got the Scottish Parliament in the first place. You ask anybody who's involved in fighting for and advocating for the Scottish Parliament, it's, it's that famous phrase of the settled will. It's that kind of canyon, uh, Ken and Wright comment about the state saying no, thank you. But the people uh, saying yes. So there's no shortcuts. And, and, you know, I've said this to many people. In fact, I was on the doorsteps of Midlothian uh, in Woodburn uh, this morning and, and speaking to some independent supporters on the doorstep. And I was saying, I'm afraid there's not a shortcut. Um, but we've got to make sure what we are in control of. So I'm not in control of when a prime minister gives me a referendum. I've got to create the political conditions for that to happen. I'm not in control of it. I'm certainly in control of building support here in Scotland. That's my gift. And so hence, we'll continue to do that while, of course, uh, doing the important job of government, which feeds into to, to that uh, as well. So, look, I don't think the, you know, there's going to be times when the momentum slips back and then goes forward. But, you know, the general election is, a, is an opportunity for those in Scotland who do believe in independence to say, actually, this issue isn't going away. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Why do you think, because from uh, afar, although obviously I'm interested in Scottish politics, I'd have thought with... Nicola Sturgeon and the popularity she had, the party you lead and the popularity it has, and still enjoys, even in this context, it's still, you are still the most popular party in, in the country, against the backdrop of Brexit and Boris Johnson and Liz Truss and Stop the Boats and all that, it doesn't feel like the dial has really shifted on independence in the way that I would have yeah. presumed and maybe you would have presumed. <clears throat> yeah. why, why is that? It's pretty, I think it's pretty simple, actually, that these, these issues obviously uh, are... Strengthen our case, I believe, for independence. But it's nowhere near enough to expect people to vote for independence as a negative proposition. And the negative proposition is, look, we don't want to be as bad as that law. Now, that's undoubtedly going to be part of an argument, but the argument has to be, well, where's the hope? Where's the vision? I think people are crying out for that. There is real anger. People look at the political establishments right across the United Kingdom, I suspect across Europe, maybe even the world, and are saying, who the hell has the leadership and the vision? And for me, independence gives that. It's not about, well, we can just be a bit better than how they are down in London or Westminster. It's like, actually, if we have the full range of powers, imagine what we can do. And I think the independence movement, and, and I've got to hold my hands up here because I've been a senior member of that movement for quite a number of years, the independence movement has not done enough to see the positives of independence, the hope, the ambition. That's what will shift the dial. That was really what will shift the dial, not just saying... Well, they've done this to us and that to us. Isn't it also understanding why people didn't vote for it? Mm. It's not necessarily that those people lack hope or ambition for Scotland or Britain or, or the world's future, that, that people who voted no still are optimistic people who want a better planet. Um, they just didn't think the reality would actually be better. Yep. They, they actually thought it would be worse. And, and these are positive people who often are involved in social democratic movements who... It feels like in the last few years haven't really been engaged. It feels like, in a way, the Yes movement, including the SP, sort of talked to itself and kept itself happy without talking to the, the, the group in the middle. You know, I always think the people who voted no, who voted to remain, were like the natural group mm. of people you should have been talking to. And I, I don't know whether from afar I haven't picked up on that, whether you have, and it doesn't matter what you say, maybe those people will never change their mind, but it felt like there was an opportunity missed there to kind of effectively be reasonable with the centre-ground referendum voter. So I think, for me, uh, it's pretty obvious, and I think most folk uh, who were in Scotland, and even those that weren't, could see from afar where we lost the argument. We lost the argument around issues around the economy, currency, pensions, for example. And that's why a lot of work has been taking place and we're releasing more and more papers and documents, not because the vast populace will read uh, the latest paper that we publish, but because actually what that I does... I will, though. You will. <laughs> um, 
It won't give you any material because it's very, very serious <laughs> stuff, of course. But what, we, what it does is it allows us to put the argument out to the public and allows our activists who take this argument to the doorstep uh, across every single doorstep in the country to say, actually, we do have an answer to the currency question or the economy of an independent Scotland. And what's fascinating is since 2014, you know, if, if the no camp, if the, those who oppose independence were to make the arguments they made in 2014, they would be laughed at. You know, this, what's strong and stable, the broad shoulders of the United Kingdom. Really? Really? Uh, have you seen what its growth rate is, barely growth rate is, in comparison to other G7 or G20 countries? Or compared to small countries that are of Scotland's size, Ireland, Austria, Denmark, Norway, why are they all wealthier? Why are they happier? Why do they have fewer peer, people uh, in poverty in comparison uh, to, 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 to the UK? You know, they told us we wouldn't be dragged out of Europe against our will. Two years later, we're dragged out of Europe against our will. Or they told us Boris Johnson will never be Prime Minister. That, 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 that bogeyman that you keep re referencing during the 2014 campaign, that'll never happen. I think it was Blair McDougall who actually was the, the, the leader of the, 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 the No campaign said, oh, this is all scare tactics. We end up with Boris Johnson. So I think, um, I, I don't actually, without being complacent, we should never be complacent. For me, winning the actual referendum is not, is not actually the most difficult part. It's we're going to have to deal with the UK government and UK governments that continue to deny the Scottish people their right to have a choice over their own future. A key difference since then is the Labour Party has changed a bit. Mm -hmm. And you're not dealing with, uh, well, it was Ed Miliband back then. It was basically Jeremy Corbyn for the last few years. Keir Starmer is a more formidable opponent than Jeremy Corbyn. He's more politically sensible. He's, he's moving the Labour Party in a, a different direction. Anna Sauer up here is more formidable than Richard Leonard. Um, do you perceive the Labour Party to be more of an existential threat to the SNP at the next election than it was last time? Labour are our main rivals. Up here in Scotland, there's no ifs or buts uh, about it. That's not, again, to be complacent about the threat of the Conservatives or Liberal Democrats or whoever, but uh, Labour are going to be our main, our main uh, threat. But what's fascinating is, despite what have been probably the most difficult few months of my party's, uh, certainly modern history, it's fair to say, um, we still, as you rightly referenced, are still leading in the polls. Uh, and that's because people do trust us. They do believe in the vision that we have for independence. Uh, but they are a threat. I think you, you completely, um, and you deserve to lose, actually, if you underestimate your opponents. So I would agree that they, they are a threat. Uh, that's why I'm out pretty much every weekend, uh, knocking doors right up and down the country. Uh, and I'll continue to do that, and so will our activists. What I would say about Keir Starmer, though, I mean, just the last few weeks have been uh, a revelation of how difficult I think general election campaign up here for Labour will be and should be uh, in, in, in Scotland. You've got a Keir Starmer now who, uh, you know, agrees to retain the two-child limit, not to scrap the bedroom tax, pro-Brexit party. Try explaining that in the doorsteps of Rutherglen and Hamilton West where you've got many children and families who are suffering. Well, say, look, Hamza, it's about electing a Labour government that can get rid of the Tories. <laughs> you know, I want to work with Hamza Yusuf, and it's great to be here with you today, but we've got to get... Isn't that what they're going to say, is effectively, if you want to get rid of the Tories, you know, that your party's benefited from having a Tory party in Westminster in terms of electoral terms. Labour becoming more sensible takes away some of that power from you, doesn't it? Because, because Labour up here can say, whatever you think of the two-child limit and all those things, if you really want to get rid of the Tory party got to vote Labour next time. I mean, that, that feels like that could be quite compelling. Look, to some it will be compelling. Uh, our point is, is very simple, or our counter to that is very simple. Uh, look how Keir Starmer has lurched to the right. He's triangulated policy after policy. 
uh, with the Tories. Uh, you know, one of the most depressing sessions of Prime Minister's questions I saw was around the illegal migration bill. And it was effectively a race to the bottom between Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer on the issue of migration. So you've got a, you've got a party that is going to triangulate itself and after Uxbridge will lurch even further, uh, I suspect, uh, to the right. So people in Scotland have got a choice. Do you really get change whether Westminster is blue or red or do you get real change with independence? And actually, we can make sure that we keep the Labour Party not just, frankly, uh, honest, but we ensure they don't forget about Scotland because that's what a Labour Party would do if they just got MPs, uh, you know, a ton of MPs from Scotland uh, filling the green benches uh, down in Westminster. Uh, and from, again, the conversations I'm having uh, this morning and have had for many, many weeks now, I don't see a big shift of SNP voters to Labour. Our big challenge will be to motivate SNP voters to come out on the day. Uh, because I think Labour voters will be motivated because, as you say, it's a, it's a change election. You know? and, and everybody knows the result of the election already. We're going to see uh, Rishi Sunak out the door, thankfully uh, so. I think it's a good thing. But the best outcome for Scotland is yeah, a Labour minority government where the SNP MPs are able to make sure Scotland's not forgotten about. So Hamza Youssef will enter into a coalition with Keir Starmer, no. that's what you're saying. <laughs> a global exclusive <laughs> here at the Edinburgh Festival. Uh, no, definitely not a coalition. I mean, we wouldn't be a Westminster government. But I'm, look, I'm absolutely willing to cooperate to work with Keir Starmer. There's obviously a price for that, but willing to work with him, certainly to see the back of, of, of the Conservatives. I'll work with anybody, frankly, to see the back of a Conservative government. Um, so, but not UKIP. Well, every, every, any progressive uh, political party that's uh, seen the back of the Conservatives. What a coalition. What, 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 what a global exclusive that would have been. Uh, Going into coalition with Nigel Farage. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you and Keir Starmer, you've got a few things in common. Um, you're both football fans. You both, you both, i tell you what, photos of you both playing football, you both look quite good when you play football. You don't look like stiff politicians kicking a ball around. You both look like you could do a job. Would you say you were good, good on the pitch? Decent. I mean, if you want, I'll play them. If you want, it's a five-a-side game. We'll do it for charity. Charity boxing stuff. match. Yeah, no, <laughs> not much. yeah let's, do it, let's do it for charity. Uh, so I've played once or twice with Anas before. So Anna, uh, okay. Anna Sawar, uh, as I say, we went to school together. So he's rubbish. Exclusive <laughs> for you. I can totally he's, believe He's not great. But Keir looks like he can, he does, he's a good player, so I wouldn't yeah. mind a match with Keir. No, I'm okay. I played, actually, I was in, at the weekend I was at a, a summer camp uh, for Care Experience Young Children. Who cares? Fantastic organisation. And um, they were all, the young people were playing with are kind of 16, 17, 18, and I played for 20 minutes, and I had to go on goals. I was like, <laughs> I need to go on goals, I need to go on goals. So my fitness level uh, is, is not great, and I'll be honest, this job definitely doesn't help, and uh, I'm very much, I'm afraid, in kind of dad bod mode. I was just saying to Matt, actually, before we started the podcast, I've, I've just started kind of Joe Wick's 20-minute uh, workout uh, on YouTube. What are you laughing at? Because... What, what, get, what just, are you laughing at? Because... It's just say like you're working out. Like. No, no, I'm doing Joe Wick's 20-minute, 20-minute, oh, no equipment-needed workout. Uh, and I've been doing that for the last few weeks. I need to, because actually, genuinely, actually, in this job, Sadik Khan gave me this advice, so I get along quite well with Sadik Khan. I've known him for uh, many, many years. So it's funny he said, seeing... don't drive into town. <laughs> <laughs> get rid of your diesel car. No, he said... Um, because I think he goes running every, every week, uh, like multiple times a week, and he said you must carve out time for your mental health, partly, uh, sorry, for your physical health as well as your mental health. And he said the physical, because you should be in good shape, and, and that's a good thing for anybody, uh, but actually it's your mental health that will greatly improve. Did Sadiq so. can't tell you you were fat? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. He said, the state you, son, I would get a treadmill, Joe Wicks, 20 minute workout. 
And since you can't drive through London, just run around uh, <laughs> zone, zone four and you'll be absolutely fine. So, uh, what's your favourite Joe Wicks workout then? Um, I don't think there's such a thing as a favourite because they're all uh, excruciatingly difficult. Um, but uh, anything that doesn't involve push-ups, I, I prefer the squats. So it does squats, crunches, push-ups and very different formulations of those. Okay, so just show us some I'm of not, the... No, no, I'm not, I'm not. Don't be that guy. I, I remember Boris Johnson doing push-ups after he was hospitalised with COVID, and no, I'm not going to do... Uh, How many push-ups Johnson. do you think you can do? Oh, shut up. <laughs> Six. <laughs> That's good. Six no, is good. Could, no, I'm, not, I'm not even going to get into this. There was, a, there was a political opponent of mine in 2021 before he got dumped by the Conservatives, a Conservative candidate, but he got dumped by the Conservatives for... I can't remember what he said about people in poverty, but it was not very nice at all. And uh, he basically started doing 20 pull-ups. And he challenged me to do 20 pull-ups. Um, so I'll just be honest, I'm pretty thankful he got dumped as a candidate, <laughs> because I can manage about seven of those. Before that's I, before so I hard. Collapse. Oh, they're really difficult. But yeah, I wouldn't... I mean, I haven't seen you without your clothes on, but... <laughs> just clarify yeah. for the print journalists but in the room. Certainly that, in clothing, you, you look like you're in good shape. No, honestly, I just feel uh, pretty un, unfit. The most running around I do is after my four-year-old, uh, to be honest, trying to, trying to catch her. But um, no, I think you do. I think it's really important. Politicians... So we, we, we are really good at preaching good mental health and good physical health, and we're, I think, pretty bad at practising, if I'm honest. Um, and it's important for your mental health. I mean, I've, you know, I've struggled at times with my mental health in this job. And one of the best things I ever did, actually, was, was getting some counselling in 2016. But it's, um, your, your mental health can really take a, a real hit in this job. And I think if you're going to be at your best, you've got to do well physically, uh, and you've got to, that helps you with your mental health as well. And, and what elements are of the job are, are those that challenge your mental health? Say that again? What elements of, uh, of the job are the things that challenge your mental health? So, I mean, the job, job obviously comes with stress. You don't go for first minister without realising if I get it, it's going to be one stress after the next, after the next, and, and you come to expect that. Um, I think for me, uh, it is constantly being on. So trying to switch off, uh, trying to you know, not have to be the first minister and just be dad or a good husband or son or whatever it is when I'm interacting with friends and family. N you know, not having the time or the mental capacity necessarily to do that, I think can be really difficult. Um, I think not seen my kids, so I get my private office know this, and, and they're wonderful and, and, and brilliant, but they know I get really grumpy if I don't see my kids for like two days, three days. I get really, you know, and I feel it. Um, so my family will come down, or even if it's late at night, I'll, I'll, I'll get back, so at least in the morning, before I leave, I can see the kids for half an hour or an hour. But it is, I think it's the family, that's probably the most difficult uh, part of it. The abuse and the constant kind of criticism, it comes with the territory, and again, I've Oh, I'm afraid I've always had some level of abuse, um, but you know I've talked about this before. Uh, in the past, it, it, I probably say the most difficult part, genuinely, is is, is the always being on. Um, of course, the, the the stresses of the job, and we've talked about what the first hundred days have been, but definitely not seen not seen the family and the and the kids. That to me is probably the most. Difficult. And how hard is it for you now, being leader of the country, to make sure that you can carve out time where you're not on? And and do you try and say I'm going to have at least one day off a week where I mean, obviously, the phone's always going to ring. There's always decisions yeah. to be made, guidance and leadership to be given. But do you try and carve out specific blocks of time, almost just to let your heart rate <laughs> drop? I, I do. And I think my, if my wife was in the audience, which is not, she'd say not nearly enough, but I do try my best. So last weekend, it was, it was my anniversary, my wife and I. And she said, oh, she said a, kind of a few weeks back, she said, what are we going to do for our anniversary? 
I said, it's, it's only our, for anybody you know, who's in my position, never say what I'm about, what I said, which was, oh, it's only our sixth anniversary, it's not, that, it's not special, right? And she was like, every anniversary <laughs> is special. I know, I'm not an idiot, I'd be married twice as well. You think I would have learned from the first, you would have learned from the first time? see why. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you think I might have learned? Uh, so, so I said, okay, let's, let's do something. And so she wanted to go paddle boarding and kayaking. Yeah, yeah, it was really good fun. So I went to Rathal Canal. It was, a, it was an organized, a company, Driftwood Adventures. And it was bizarre because I'm sitting there paddle boarding down the Rathal Canal and you could see people walking by the canal going, What's that? <laughs> <laughs> on this paddle Greek, board. But he has got a paddle. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, on, it was a nice Sunday, uh, after, nice Sunday uh, afternoon. So trying to carve out time like that, and as my kids, yeah, I try, and in my private office, in fairness, they, they are great. Um, I'll try to just say, look, guys, there's something I just do not want to miss. So, for example, during the summer, so my, my four-year-old started, started gymnastics a few months ago. She loves it. She's got so much energy. And um, I've never been able to see her gymnastics because it takes place on a Tuesday. Every Tuesday, I'm in Edinburgh, and it's Parliament, and all the rest, the Cabinet, on a Tuesday morning. And so, during summer recess, I said to the team, look, Tuesday morning, 11 o'clock to 12, on this day, do not put anything in. Right? Whatever happens, don't put, put in. And she loved it. I took her for gymnastics for an hour. She's every station she was at doing a roly-poly or on the bars. Like, that ain't that. So, I mean, that kind of stuff to me, it just means the world. Because people often talk about, the, what do you think your political legacy will be? What do you want to achieve? And of course, you've always got things you want to achieve. <clears throat> but, I mean, and I say this in, in all seriousness, I want my legacy to be my kids to be like, he was a good dad. Like, a really good dad um, at the end of it. Because, you know, I, I, I have an, an uncle. Uh, passed away. I'm sorry, I'm going off on a tangent. That's I have right. an uncle who passed away, you know, in his 50s, pancreatic cancer. And, you know, he battled it for two and a half years, which is a long time for pancreatic cancer. And um, he was a cool uncle. You know, you've all got the cool uncle because he was the youngest, so he was the most kind of closest to us in age. And he'd take us to the park, took me to my first Celtic game, taught me how to head a football. And um, he used to spend loads of time. And this is no disrespect to my own dad, who I loved to bits, but my dad was always working. Had his own business seven days a week. But that's 71, still work six days a week. It's just a workhorse. And I remember my uncle passed away, and my cousin, his son, um, you know, he had, a, he had a baby a year and a half ago, and he said to me, if I can be half the dad my dad was, my uncle was, then, then I've made it. That's all. And, and I think like that to myself, my, my uncle, my dad is my role model too, but my uncle, who would just spend so much time with his kids, you know, if I could be, be half a dad that he was. So that, that really is a legacy I want to leave uh, behind for my, my family. So sorry, forgive me, it was a no, very no. long answer to your very short question. No, but it's, it's about putting all these things in context, isn't it? And, and what's it like being a dad in the modern world? I mean, there's lots of discussions about toxic masculinity. Yeah. Um, is that something you think about raising children? Yeah, uh, I do a lot. So I'm a father to two girls, four and a 14-year-old. What's it like in the modern world? One funny story about Butte House, if I tell you very quickly, is um, so Butte House has never had small children in it. The first first minister to have little kids. And this came to the fore very quickly when my four-year-old, who was then three, and their first night in Butte House, decided to stick her head through the banister of Butte House. And, uh, and, and quite a few floors up, and we had to pull her back. <laughs> so if you, uh, Butte House is closed because it's getting repairs done to the roof, but if you did go in before then, there was an Ikea sheet wrapped all the way around the Butte House <laughs> stairs, so she wouldn't stick her head in. Um, in terms of uh, the, the serious point, I, I worry a lot about this, a lot about it. Um, I, you know, I, 
worry about just how much violence against women and girls we're seeing. And again, I kind of look at this obviously as First Minister, but also, as I say, as a dad of, of two girls. And it feels to me like it's, it's getting worse in terms of, you know, I talk to a lot of female uh, colleagues, friends, relatives, and they tell me that they are, are more worried about walking down the street alone, that they're gripping their keys tighter in their pocket in case they get attacked. Their rights on a global scale, look at what happened in Roe versus Wade, I never thought we'd see that in my lifetime, let alone what is happening uh, in some parts of Europe uh, as well. So for me, I, I think there's a big responsibility as a male in the position that I'm in. If I want to tackle violence against women and girls, then I've got to do what I can to try to root out that toxic masculinity because it is men who are the threat to women. It's men who are the dangers to women when it comes to violence against women. Uh, so I'd quite like to I'm really flesh this out more in my programme for government um, when we go back in, in, in September and thereafter. But I think there's a real opportunity for men in you know, leadership roles, doesn't just have to be politi politicians, whether it's in your workplace or as part of your family or in your school or, as I say, in, in, in politics. Can we show real leadership by, I think, doing a few things. One, trying to understand why, what is making young men so angry. Why is it they're gravitating to the Andrew Tates of this world who are beyond toxic? What is it? Because we can't just finger point and say what you're saying is really bad. Like, what is it? Why is it you're angry? Let's try and understand it. And what does the positive male identity look like? I truthfully would struggle to articulate it really well. That what does that positive male identity look like? And can we in Scotland, what we've done really well in the climate field, for example, is, is we've shown a lot of global leadership. I'd love to be able to create almost a kind of global coalition of, of male role models and, and leaders who are saying, you know what, we're going to stand against toxic masculinity. We're going to talk about a positive male identity. We're going to teach our sons, our nephews, um, our, our grandsons, uh, our brothers, we're going to, our fathers, ourselves. We're going to actually not just talk about a positive male uh, role, uh, identity, but we're going to try to create this kind of global coalition. And let's try to take, you know, let's not leave a vacuum for the Andrew Tates and others to come in. And why do you think some young men are so angry and seduced by people like Andrew Tate? You know, I, think, I think people that are, are far more learned than me in these things will uh, have, have written on it. But I think about, you know, this is why I think the point about pontificating is really important. That it's not enough to just tell young boys and men, look, what you're doing is terrible and wrong. Although, of course, we must challenge behaviours, and that's got to be a big part of it. Um, and I've seen some good campaigns in around that. I think we've got to understand it. So if I, if I talk to, to a young, white boy in Priest Hill, in my constituency, in the, in the, in the heart of Pollock, and it's an area of, of still some deprivation, you know, if he's being told, you know, you enjoy loads of privilege, white privilege, this privilege, that privilege, he's like, well, I, I don't feel it. You know, I don't feel it. Uh, there's still poverty around him. You know, there's still challenges he faces. And I think it's trying to understand that and, 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 and not, as I say, just pontificate and say, okay, actually, you know what, here's how, here's how a six, you know, you can be a positive male role model. Yes, it's, uh, you know, absolutely, you know, fine to be and want to be successful and to be powerful and to be strong. Here's how you do it without, by the way, threatening women, without violence against women, without trying to exert your power over women. And there's got to be a way of doing it. And that's why Andrew Tate, I think, is so, so, so um, attractive because he, to, to, to many young boys um, and men, because he is rich and powerful and strong and all these things that might appeal, but you can do that in a way that I don't think is a threat at all uh, to, 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 to women and girls. So uh, who were your male role models growing up then outside of your family? Would it have been Henrik Larsson, 
I had a giant poster. I had a giant poster of Henrik Larsson. It's the only time that I've been speechless, actually. Like, I've done speeches in front of thousands of people. And then I was invited to a Celtic game when I was, uh, I can't remember, many years ago now. And uh, I came out of the tunnel, and, and Henrik Larsson was there. And, uh, my, you know, somebody was with me and said, oh, you like Henrik? Why don't you speak to him? I said, I can't speak to him. I can't, I can't <laughs> so I couldn't even ask for a photo. I was dead speechless. Um, for me, growing up, it was a lot of people, like, I mean, I, I, I read Malcolm X's biography Front to cover, uh, front to back, cover to cover, time <laughs> and time again. Yeah, yeah, start <laughs> to finish. Right, constantly. Like I, I must have read that about twenty times, uh, over and over again. Um, and because he was a Muslim as well, it appealed to me. Thank you. Well, so, you know, just really respected uh, uh, how he carried himself throughout uh, his whole life, particularly towards the latter kind of year of his life. Um, and 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 of course, a lot of us will have been inspired by people like Nelson Mandela. Talk about Nicola, actually. She did come to my fourth year modern studies class. And uh, that was the first time I ever met her. And I thought, she's kind of boring. No, I thought, I know, I thought she's, no, no, I didn't, I didn't think that. I thought, aye, she's, no, this party's not bad. And my dad keeps going on about it. Um, so, no, I've had a, a few, but definitely most of them were probably in the, in the football world. But a lot of them were a family. Like, a lot of them were people like my dad, who, you know, just worked and worked and worked, but provided for his family. And you could see where, you know, my mum... My mum, by far, was the more powerful, and still is the more <laughs> dominant in the relationship. And 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 in our family dynamic, she's the kind of the matriarch, and and she set really strong uh, values uh, for all of us. So I've got two sisters, one older, one younger, and particularly in the Asian culture, a lot of times you go to somebody's house in the Asian culture, South Asian culture, and the women would come and serve the teas, and the girls would do it, and the guys would just be sitting around talking. And my mum, and I thank her for this. I didn't thank her at the time. But I thank her for it now. I mean, she would make the point of making me serve the tea when all of her friends came around. So she would say to them, he works here as well. And make sure, <laughs> make sure the door was left open as she made me do the dishes and all that. So, so you know, um, I think positive male models are important. I think it's a big part of it. I think actually challenging some uh, cultures and behaviour, I think is going to be important too. <coughs> Obviously, the, the importance of reading books that inspire is, is crucial. Uh, and there's a story in the Times this morning about some of the books that have been bought on Scottish government credit cards, including mm. six copies of Nicola Sturgeon's book, 22 copies of a book called um, How to Run a Government, whilst uh, something like How to Inspire Citizens Without um, Infuriating the... Uh, how to, what's the title? I don't, I it's don't know. Something like <laughs> Tell me. How to Run a Government, Running a Government, how to run a government that delivers and doesn't, like, annoy people or something. It's a pretty good and, book. And Who wrote that one? <laughs> Not Malcolm X. But it was... Um, 22 copies of that have been bought on a, on a government credit card. I mean, it, there seems... To be, the suggestion in the story seems to be that there's a, a fair bit of waste at the taxpayer's expense. Mm. Um, well, I've read the story. So I'll yeah. come, um, these were spends that were made uh, a number of years ago, I think, between was it 2019 and, and 2022, I think. So, uh, look, I think it's fair to ask the questions that people are asking about, you know, was this item spent? Why was it spent? Uh, why was it bought by the civil service and by uh, potentially government ministers? Uh, so I will ask the, the permanent secretary to just review, you know, do we have the right procedures in place when it comes to spend? Same time, look, civil servants reading books about governing, governing well, that's not a bad thing. You know, so I push back ever so slightly to say I would quite like my civil servants to read. I didn't realise we had so many in the crowd. Actually, <laughs> that's, uh... <laughs> that's just my special advice. No, um, no it's, it's, I think it's not a bad thing. But look, I, I, I do take the point. I think I saw some items on it, you know, in the spend that was mentioned, and I thought, well, 
you know, I can understand why people have got questions. So I will ask the permanent secretary to take a look. And, and do we have uh, the robust rules in place uh, when it comes to those that kind of spend? So the company. But can I just say also? Yeah. I mean, you know, this is spend over over a number of years, uh, and I, I noticed one of the the headlines around you know security through airports and so on and so forth, uh, which again is fair for people to ask and question. But you know, this is a number of you know thousands of pounds over a few years uh, period. You know, in the week that, you know, I don't know how many tens of thousands of pounds Rishi Sunak spent on a private jet from London to Scotland. So, you know, yes, we absolutely have to be mindful of every penny and every pound uh, that we spend. But we've also got to be mindful of people's security. And we're living in a day and age where MPs have literally been killed. Um, and, you know, I can't tell you how many threats I get, um, partly because I protect myself from notifications now. But, uh, you know, there's been certainly at least, at least six people that have been charged for, you know, charged in the courts for uh, abuse towards me, and that's only the ones that I've ever reported. Mm -hmm. um, there'll be many, many more that I've just never seen or had the chance to, to, to report. So, uh, you know, there's always got to be a balance of these things, but I think people with a high profile generally, particularly in politics, it is important that they listen to the security advice. That's, don't be dismissive of the security advice that they get. So in a few years' time, when the receipts from your period as First Minister are out, people are going to say, Henrik Larson's autobiography? <laughs> 20 signed copies really necessary? <laughs> only, only 20 signed copies uh, of Henrik Larson's biography. Has he got a, another biography out? I don't know. Not I, just, I presume there must be. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> no, uh, no you've, got, you've got to be mindful. It's, you know, it's yeah. a cost-of-living crisis, of course. And we've got to really be mindful. I find that actually quite funny, because um, you're talking about what you do with your kids. And um, I go, there's a park near my house that I go to uh, with a four-year-old uh, if we can find some time. And so I let my security know, and you know they'll, they're very good. They'll kind of hang back, but they'll obviously have to be there. And um, it is really funny. I get people coming up to me all the time saying, we didn't expect you to be here in the park. I'm like, where the hell? So I'm going to take my four-year-old <laughs> if it's not in the park and feeding the ducks. Um, but yeah, she's really funny because she's just kind of got used to these folk kind of following us around. But, uh, but do, do other parents sort of lobby you at the swings? Do they sort of sidle <laughs> up to you and go, um, yeah. wait for an operation at the moment, actually? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the worst one, the way they do it is, is, is they always start the same way. Actually, we're, we're on holiday in, in Turkey. We managed to get, I got six days away. And... Um, it was before the English school holiday, so a lot of the folk there were Scottish, and again, they were kind of, hmm, didn't expect to see you here. And um, they always start the conversation. I remember at the pool, I was watching my four-year-old, and they said, I'm really sorry, because you probably don't want to talk about politics. And I'm like, yes, I don't, I don't, I don't. <laughs> and by the way, <laughs> this school I was at, da -da 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 -da, or this at the NHS, and so, yeah, whenever they start with, you probably don't want to talk about politics, you know you're in for a, a fairly lengthy discussion, which is fair play. So is that partly then, I'm putting this all together now, the Joe Wicks, is in case you go, like, sunbathing <laughs> and you've got your shirt off and you're down to your speedos <laughs> and, never... and voters see you, you want to look <laughs> shredded. No, no, um, I think I, I started Joe Wicks far too late uh, uh, for that. But you are mindful of the cameras. I think the really funny one is when people... There's two things. People say things to each other uh, when you're kind of walking nearby, and they must think that I can't hear. They must think I just generally can't hear. So that you get, I mean, and it's never, it's never terribly, uh, terribly uh, malicious or anything, but it's even things like, is that a hang of me? Is that a hang of me? And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's me, hi. And, and, and uh, they'll also 
surreptitiously try to take pictures. So there'll be this mobile phone like that. Yeah. But I can see you if you want a picture. It's no problem. So, Man, your so cabinet you get... ministers are crazy. <laughs> <laughs> like, Mum, put the camera for me. Um, so yeah, you do you do get people, but the, honestly, ninety nine percent of in fact, I, I don't think I've had a single touches with uh, really bad reaction in public from people. I think people that don't like you just don't talk to you. Yes. You're alone. Um, but folk that just want to say it's nice to see you and you'll get folk I don't like your politics but I'll tell you what it's nice to see you in the park with your Wayne um, yeah it's, it's, it's nice most folk are actually very very good people all you've got to do is visit every park in Scotland before the next general election done, done. you get every win every, every vote, seat across every the country seat, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly Humza this has been an absolute treat the well, time you. has flown by thank you so much for coming on the show just before I let you go what would you rather see Celtic win the Champions League again in your lifetime. Oh, don't. Don't or ask the, me the next <laughs> Or the SNP win the next general election. <laughs> the SNP win the next general election. <laughs> Absolutely. No, no, I would be the SNP win a general election. Uh, for sure, for sure. Is that convincing? No, well, I, took a bit of <laughs> I mean, we've won it once, you know, the Champions League. Yeah. Or, or, you know, European Cup. It was a, and First this is the club thing, in the UK to As do my so. mate always says, when Celtic and Forest won it, it was called the European Cup, but it was a Champions League. Yeah, yeah. Because it was only Champions League play. Now it's called a Champions League, but it's actually yeah. a European Cup. True, true, true. that, isn't it? True. So, and we won it before Nottingham Forest, just to be clear. <laughs> quite, a, quite a bit before. That's true. But and we you had it. Martin O'Neill in your squad as well, right? That's right, and we won it twice. No. So there is that. <laughs> there you go. So, you know, honours even. Um, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming to this. On the 18th of August, I'm interviewing Angela Rayner. Tickets are available for that online. And on the 21st of August, uh, I'll be interviewing Kate Forbes. So I'll see you there, Hamza. Um, <laughs> <laughs> for an emotional reunion. But ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being such a wonderful crowd. But please, a huge thank you to Yumza Yusuf. Yumza. I'll do that. Thank you. Well, there you go. The First Minister, Hamza Yusuf. And I have to say, the uh, composure with which he dealt with that wasp, something I've never seen before. Uh, I mean, I would have... <laughs> I'm terrified of wasps and bees, although I'm more pro-bee because of... Um, although wasps do pollinate, apparently. I, I did Google it. Um, but I, I find bees more reasonable. Um, but, he, he, I mean, it was on him. And it, I'd, I'd have squealed. I'd have squealed and yelped and ran around were it not for the sciatica. So uh, the composure under pressure was was admirable. Um, but so much fascinating stuff. And obviously, hearing about his personal experience of... of um, racism and and just that that sense that for some people they'll, they'll always look down their nose at him and, and not accept him purely on the base of his race is just heartbreak heartbreaking um so uh it, it was and the time just flew by as, as these things always do when when you're talking to interesting people so uh, my next guest at the edinburgh festival on the 18th um, of August is Angela Rayner, the deputy leader of the Labour Party. And then on the 21st of August, it's Kate Forbes, um, who uh, ran against Thomas Yusuf to be uh, the leader of the SNP. And then, as I said at the start, back in London on the 18th of September with Dan Jarvis. And on the 2nd of October with Jason Williamson. Loads more guests to be announced. Go to mattford.com slash live, uh, and they'll all be announced there. And my tour has been announced as well. Not only am I doing the Edinburgh Festival, um, but Inside Number 10 will tour next year. I'm doing some London dates. I'm doing the Leicester Square Theatre on, I think, the 15th of September. Oh, why did I not? Let me just quickly Google it. Oh, I'm so bad at this. 
Uh, I'm doing a, a run at the Soho Theatre in November. Yes, 15th of September, I got it right. I'm doing the Leicester Square Theatre. Uh, then I'm doing a run at the Soho Theatre in November. And then from February, I'm touring it nationwide, including Nottingham, Glasgow, Al Crikey, Chipping Norton, Salford, all sorts of places, all sorts of um, uh, some favourite venues and some new ones as well. I'm going to stop prattling on there. But I am going to try and um, get back to recording weekly episodes. It's just... Um, I'm not sure if you've had sciatica, but it, it, I mean, it is a nightmare. And um, not being able to sit down is kind of it just a, a lack of general mobility has, has hampered me doing even basic tasks. But this podcast will return to its usual weekly um, schedule uh, as soon as uh, that is possible. So um, apologies for the slight delay since the last episode. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this one and I'll see you soon. Ta-ra. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.